We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read in the book of the Revelation. We shall read from the beginning of the chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in the Mount Sion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with woman, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God, and so on. As we come to this chapter, you can see clearly that the focus is once again upon the Lamb that we are introduced to at the early part of the book. When we go through the whole of Scripture, beginning in Genesis right through to the Revelation, we will note that we begin with a sacrifice of a lamb. And when we come to the last book of the Bible, we see the lamb enthroned. Right throughout Scripture, focus is upon God's Lamb, the Lamb that he provided at the very beginning was a symbol of the great redemptive provision that he would make to cover the sins of his people. Abraham, we are told, rejoiced when he saw the day of Christ. And he clearly saw that day whenever he and Isaac were journeying to Mount Moriah where God required of Abraham that he would offer up to God his only well-beloved son and his only begotten son. And on the journey, uh, Isaac asked, well, here's the fire, here is the wood for the sacrifice, but where is the lamb? And Abraham, by faith, said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb. He had previously said to his servants that he and his son would go further and they would return again. And Abraham, when he was binding his son in the altar, was sure and certain, Well, God has given me his covenant promise And he has assured me that Isaac is the promised covenant seed. He is the line from which the seed of the woman will eventually come. And he went forth obeying God, but with that assurance, whatever God is asking me to do and whatever the sacrifice I am required to make, I can trust God's promise He will not break his covenant. Then as we proceed through history, we see in the days of John the Baptist, he points out to his disciples the one whom he identifies as the Lamb of God. The one had been promised, the one that Abraham saw. Now John sees him in the flesh. Abraham saw him by faith. Now John sees him in the flesh. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away 
the sin of the world. Some of the greatest pictures in the whole of Scripture of the Lamb are in this book of the Revelation. The Lamb exalted and the Lamb enthroned. But here, in this chapter 14, we have one of the most amazing, most wonderful, outstanding views of the Lamb throughout the whole of Scripture. John says, I looked, and lo, it was a great wonder to him. It was as though it was almost something he wasn't expecting to see. Lo and behold, this is what I actually saw. A lamb stood on the Mount Sion. And not only is the lamb standing on Mount Sion, but note those two little words, with him, with him, and hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And as enabled, we would concentrate upon the position in which the lamb is presented to us. A lamb stood on the Mount Sion. And then we may consider the company that is with him, with him. He's not alone. With him is an hundred and forty and four thousand. And so on. Now back in the chapter 13, what do we find? In chapter 12, chapter 13, there is this raging war. The powers of darkness are identified and described for us. The dragon and the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth, the devil and the beast and the false prophet, as we've seen them, all arrayed with one, one pursuit, the destruction, as far as possible, of Christ's church. Now, you will see in different occasions, we've already looked at it, power given to these forces of darkness to actually overcome the saints of God. It does seem that the powers of darkness are prevailing and they are overcoming the uh, saints of God. They slay in chapter 11 the Lord's two witnesses. Then when we come to chapter uh, 13 and uh, chapter 12, and, uh, they are... Uh, overcoming the uh, saints of God. And then in chapter 13 particularly, we are told that it was given, verse 7, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations so that wherever the saints are to be found, in any nation, there he pursues them, and uh, he is able to overcome them again. In verse, <coughs> in chapter 13 again, and in verse 16, he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and no man might buy or sell save him that had the mark or the name or the number of the beast and so on. Now, wouldn't you imagine, as in any war situation, that when the battle is completed or over, then the casualties are counted up. The casualties of war. How many casualties did we have? How many deaths? Here, we are seeing a raging war. And the powers of darkness have the power to overcome. 
So what would we expect normally, naturally, the casualties that are going to fall among the saints? They are going to have to count up the number of the slaughtered, the number of the slain that have been destroyed by these powers. But here, what do we find? A lamb stood on Mount Sion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand. Now, before we consider who these are, look at where this lamb is. We go back into chapter 13, verse 11, the second beast. Out of the earth, he has two horns like a lamb, and he speaks as a dragon. He is a parody of the true lamb. And yet he has tremendous power to deceive and to cause that the beast that had been wounded and is wounded, wounded to death, his wound is healed, now to be worshipped. It's a whole parody of the gospel, of the redeeming work of Christ, the death and resurrection of the Redeemer. This is a false gospel that is being proclaimed and adhered to throughout the earth. And we might think, as John, no doubt, would have thought... You imagine the seven churches, as we said, this book is a pastoral book to the seven churches. It is prophetical in that it refers to things that are shortly to come to pass. And it is a practical book because it has lessons to be applied to the church in every generation. And here in the chapter 13... It would seem that it is a very dark picture for the church. And if in the seven churches they're reading this book, up until this chapter, what do they see? Nothing but darkness and dark days ahead of them. A warfare with powers that are going to even overcome them at times. And then John comes here. And I looked. Because there's more to see. How often we don't look. And we stop short. We think this is it. And we don't see anything further. And we think, well, this is as far as we can go. This is as far as God wants us to go. This is the gloomy picture we have to end with. John says, I looked, for there was something got my attention, something far more marvelous, something so contrasting with what I've already seen and heard. I looked, and lo, lo, a lamb, and he stood on the Mount Zion. Now, when you go back to the second Sam, it's very obvious there, Uh, who this one is. We've looked at it before, but it's good to return to it. Uh, We're told there the heathen are raging, and the people imagine a vain thing. You imagine some of the godly, when they're reading through the record of the revelation, and they're perhaps in their worship, In this synagogue, they're chanting this second psalm. Well, it's all so clear to them. The heathen are raging. And the people all around us, they're imagining a vain thing. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You can imagine how appropriate this psalm would be to the godly. They read chapter uh, these chapters in Revelation. They understand what it really signifies. And they turn to this psalm, and they can see, my, my, 
How did David write these words all these years ago? It is because he was directed by the Spirit of God to write. And then, what do we read? He, verse 4, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. How many people believe that? They look around, they see, well, the government's doing this. The parliamentarians are doing that. They're changing this law. They're changing that. Where is God? God's in the heavens. And uh, he says, I have set my king upon my holy hill Zion. I have set my king upon my holy hill Zion. And uh, he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and so on. And when we come to Revelation 14, here's the Lamb standing on the Mount Zion by God's eternal decree. And he is there because he has been set there by God. And he's laughing. God is laughing at all the desperate efforts of the powers of darkness because they're defeated. And yet they refuse to surrender. They carry on in defiance of God. Now, in the epistle to the Hebrews, we get further light upon this Mount Sion in chapter 12 of Hebrews. The apostle there tells us of those, the saints of God, and they come to the Mount Sion, Hebrews chapter 12, and the verse 22 and verse 23, we are come in verse 22 unto Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where John is now directing his attention to the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you remember the contrast that Paul makes when he's writing to the Galatians between the earthly Jerusalem that's in bondage and the heavenly Jerusalem of the liberated, redeemed saints? Now here, the Lamb is in Mount Zion, standing in Mount Zion. And an innumerable company of angels are with him, verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So you can see that Mount Zion, in reality, is not isolated either to earth or to heaven but it is the heavenly abode of the glorified Redeemer, the city of the living God, the city that is more fully described in the book of the Revelation, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, what a glorious sight we have then. Here is the glorious Christ, not where the world wants him to be, not where the heathen would put him. They are raging and they were saying, we will not have him to reign over us. We resist his yoke. We refuse his authority. But what does God say? By a decree, he's where I will have him. Mount Zion. And they may rage and they may rant, and they may roar at the church of Christ, the saints of God, but they cannot move one iota 
not even one centimeter, are they capable of moving the glorious Redeemer, the Lamb of God, from the position that God has given him. Now, this must be a tremendous encouragement to John. He's writing to the seven churches. Some of them are being persecuted. Some of them have been put to death. They can see suffering ahead of them, persecution. But here they are to get this glorious news, the Lamb standing in Mount Zion. I, back in the Old Testament in the second book of Kings, and as I said, it is so important that we see what we ought to see and what God intends us to see. So often we're blind to the divine realities that would be a tremendous encouragement to us. In the second book of Kings, chapter 6, you remember the prophet Elisha. And here he is with his servant, surrounded by this amassed crowd of enemies. And whenever Elisha's servant sees the danger they're in, he begins to fear. Verse 15 of Second Kings 6 when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. Now you can imagine how, Alicia, are you and your servant going to escape from this? How are you ever going to escape the city surrounded with horses and chariots? Ah, but when his servant saw this, he says, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Are we going to get out of this? There's no way of escape. He answered him, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And his servant may have said, well, where are they? You remember in the days of Elijah the prophet, he said, I only am left. They seek my life to destroy it. What did God say? Not so, Elijah. I have 3,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You maybe don't know where they are, Elijah, but I have my eye upon them. And there's Elisha here said, fear not. For they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes. Elisha didn't pray, Lord, scatter the enemies. He didn't say, destroy their horses and chariots. He didn't pray that way. He didn't say, change the scene. Remove these enemies. What did he pray? Lord, I pray thee open his eyes. And sometimes that's what we need, the opening of our eyes. That he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Alicia. Now note, because we will refer to it in a moment, notice what answer God gives to Alicia's prayer. Behold, when the young man's eyes were opened, he saw something. Behold, the mountain. The mountain was full of horses and uh, of chariots of fire round about Alicia. God opened the eyes of the young man to see what was always there. But he just hadn't been seeing it because he was seeing only as the natural man. 
And he was seeing only with a physical eye. And God opened his eyes. And that's what we need. And when we come to the revelation, God opens the eyes of John. And through John, he's to open the eyes of the saints of God and the seven churches and throughout the universal church in time. Now, notice how we find the Lamb in Mount Zion. Remember what Elisha saw, what the young man saw. The mountain was full of horses and chariots. Now, the mountain is always in contrast to the valley. The mountain is the high ground. And where do we see the Lamb? He's taken the high ground during the American Civil War, the great famous Battle of Gettysburg, 1863, one of the last outstanding battles during the Battle of Gettysburg was fought out, and perhaps some of the younger ones who do history may have knowledge of what became known famously as uh, Pickett's Charge, the charge of the southern brigades against uh, the Union forces, and they lost Pickett's Charge. They lost around 50% of their soldiers. Although they were brave, although they were determined, even before they charged, some of them knew, we can't win. Because one of the Union generals who had suffered quite a number of defeats at the hands of General Lee's forces, the Confederate troops, wisely sat down and began to consider how did we lose that battle? How is it that the southern troops are beating us so often? And then it dawned on them. They always go for the high ground. And what did he do? There was a great race for the high ground. They pulled out all the stops. The uh, troops from the north pulled out all the stops to get to the high ground. And what became known as Pickett's Charge was charging up against the high ground where the Union troops had the advantage. And they were just slaughtered because they failed to get the high ground. What a glorious sight we have here. God has set his king, his son, his lamb, and the vantage point of the high ground. And there he is ruling there he is reigning, but he's doing something more. We've seen the lamb in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders. But here he's not sitting in Mount Zion. We're seeing him standing. I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. What's he doing? He's controlling the whole warfare. He is in control. And here are the enemies overcoming his sins and even putting them to death, it seems. But here's the glorious lamb and he's crowned with many crowns and he has the advantage. He's on the higher ground, Mount Zion, and he's overlooking the great scene of the battle, and he's controlling it. 
He's controlling the events. He's guiding his people, those who are warring in his name. He's overlooking them, and he's guiding them aright. And this is a scene most glorious. Imagine if the church, churches, the seven churches in Asia, amidst all their trials, get a sight of this. Our glorious Redeemer, he's on high, but he's standing. And what's he doing? He's controlling everything. He hasn't lost control of the battle because the beasts and the dragon are overcoming some of his poor people. You remember what is written there in the Acts of the Apostles concerning Stephen. Stephen's death is recorded for us, and uh, as it comes to the end, whenever he's been stoned to death, we're told what Stephen was saying. In the chapter 7, full of the Holy Ghost, verse 55, looking up steadfastly into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, not sitting, but standing. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Stephen got a sight that enabled him in the midst of this brutality to just simply go to sleep in Jesus Christ because he saw whatever they're doing. He saw the glorious Christ standing at the right hand of God. He's in control and I'm resigned to his glorious will. This is a truly glorious sight to encourage the buffeted church in the days of John. But then, let's look at the company that are with him. What an amazing company. And remember to keep in mind, we're talking about the war of the ages. Not the First World War or the Second World War or the Vietnam War, or any other war. This is the war of the ages. The powers of heaven and the powers of hell. Powers of light and the powers of darkness. And a lamb is standing in Mount Zion. The one of whom Isaiah tells us in chapter 55, provided by God, the great leader and the great commander who's in control. Ah, the church of Christ may be passing through dark times, but we have a leader, and we have a commander, and he's on Mount Zion. Now then, with him, those words are so enlightening. With him, oh, they're just not merely in his company, that is true. But they are with him. They are with him in spirit. They are with him as united to him. They are with him because they are in Christ and he is in them. They are with him because they are his redeemed people. But they are truly heart and soul with him in this great warfare. And what are we told about their number? And hundred, forty, and four thousand. Now what have we seen in the previous chapter? Well, the powers of darkness are overcoming. So surely we'd be thinking they must be reducing the numbers greatly. They've killed the two witnesses. 
They've slain many of the saints. There can't possibly be 144,000. You go back to chapter 7. And what do we read before the warfare really begins? An angel is sent uh, that is to seal, verse 3 of chapter 7, the servants of our God in their foreheads. Mark them in their foreheads so that they will be distinguished as the redeemed people of God. How many are there? Well, we're told that the number which was sealed were an hundred and forty and four thousand. What is Christ promised? I give unto my sheep eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My, what a sight. John, how many are there now in the midst of this raging battle? The dragon with his hatred and the beast out of the sea and the false prophet. They've been given power over the nations and power to slay the saints. Surely, John, there must be a few missing. Can't be 144,000 anymore. Ah, but this is the sight, you see. 144,000. There's not one missing. Not one lost. There they are. The symbolic significance, of course, of this number is the completeness, the absolute completeness of Christ's church, the Old Testament church, the New Testament church, 144,000, a great number which no man could number. And here John is seeing, my, you can imagine, the rage of the dragon, the rage of the false prophet who has sought to use his influence against the saints and the beast that has been slaughtering them. The lamb won't be so grand looking. He'll be standing and a lot of his troops are missing. They become casualties in the great war. No, John, look! Little wonder we read, I looked and lo, he must have marveled. There they are. The church is intact. The saints and the godly, they've all been kept. They've all been preserved. But then, notice what else we read here. They are 40 and 4,000. In chapter 7, the angel uh, marked them on their foreheads that they would be identified as the redeemed of the Lord. Now here we're told that they have this identity. They have their father's name written in their foreheads. They all have the same identification. They all belong to the same master. They all serve the same Lord or the Lamb. When my sons were little fellows, like many children, they go through a phase in life where they're collecting things. And I used to have to go all over the place looking for military cap badges. They were always collecting all the regimental cap badges everywhere. All the regiments past and present. And they would think it was wonderful when they found a badge belonging to some famous regiment. And they would be collecting these and building up their collections. And then 
maybe some of the elderly ministers or elders might come to a communion and they'd want to show off their collection. Maybe some old elder would say, ah, that's the badge of my regiment. That's the regiment I fought with in the last war. And it was as though there was a certain pride. I belonged. I played my part. I had my identification. Identifying me with the troops of the United Kingdom in the great war against the aggressor. Here we have the redeemed troops of the glorious Christ. And they have in their foreheads an identification that identifies them with the hosts of heaven. It has been the custom all down through warfare that The troops would know each other. They would know who their enemy was or they would know who their friends were by the various identifications. You go back to Scotland and all the clans, they had their own clan tartan that identified them from the other clans. And they would wear the clan of their chief. And so they were identified and they could identify one another as foes or as friends. And here is this great redeemed host. And they have this heavenly identity, the Father's name written in their foreheads. They belong to him. And what does John say they're doing? I heard a voice from heaven is the voice of many waters, like a great roaring of an avalanche of water. And is the voice of a great thunder, unmistakable. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. It is loud, it is clear, It is harmonious and melodious. It is the song that belongs to a people. Not everyone knows it. They sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Now, look at the scene. The great commander general himself, the glorious Christ of God, the Lamb, slain from before the foundation of the world. And all his troops marshaled with him, 144,000 all identified. What are they doing? They're joining in the great national anthem of heaven. That's what it is. They sang, as it were, a new song. And unless they are of the redeemed, they don't know this song. They can't understand it before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000, even to this very day. Uh, You hear uh, the American Marines, they have a special song of the Green Beret, uh, and the troops have their own, uh, unless you are of the regiment, you don't know that song. Here are this 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. This is the anthem of God's redeemed. God's liberated saints in Christ. And they are singing the heavenly anthem because they are not in defeat but in victory. And what is special about them? Here's their qualifications. To this day, whenever a young man applies to join any of 
Her Majesty's forces or the forces here in Australia, whatever, well, many are disqualified. They simply do not make it. I remember when our middle son passed out as a Marine commando that the parents there, when they saw that uniform, when they saw their son with his green beret, they felt a certain degree of pride because they knew what their sons had passed through to reach that. And they knew that only 2% of all the applications ever make it. And here we have the qualifications of those who are qualified to stand with the glorious Lamb. What's the first thing we see about them? Verse 4, they are the redeemed to begin with. Verse 4, these are the marks of these redeemed saints. They are those who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now we have to understand the meaning of this in the context. We will come to it in due course. The great whore, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth riding on the back of the beast. But these have kept themselves pure. And they have not fallen into the snare of the multitudes around them. They've kept themselves pure. They have been devoted to Christ. And they have not been defiled by the godless society around them. They have remained pure in the midst of all the impurity. And that is how the redeemed saints of God are in this world. You look at the patience of the saints that is mentioned in chapter 13. And verse 10, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword because God's decree uh, is unalterable. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword and so on. But the saints of God are patient by faith in the midst of all that is happening to them and around them. We come to verse 12 of chapter 14. Here again is the patience of the saints. In the midst of all that's happening, they wait patiently upon the Lord. But note the two things. That is stated about them. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Notice what they keep. The commandments are the law of God and the faith of Jesus. Now you will find there are people going around today, antinomians, against law, or without law, is what it means. And they say, well, we're not under law anymore. We have Christ. We're saved by grace. And it's grace that matters, not law. And there are people like that. And they think, well, I can get to heaven. I don't need to keep the Sabbath day holy. I don't need to be honest in my dealings. I don't need to bother about the sin of covetousness or bearing false witness against my neighbor. I don't need to bother about those things. I'm saved by grace, not by works. You'll see here what is clearly stated of these saints who are with Christ. They patiently, by faith, when others around them are departing from the truth, violating the laws of God, they no longer want the commandments of God. 
They don't think they need them. They refuse submission to God's laws. You can see here that the mark of the saints is they keep God's law while they believe in the faith of Jesus Christ. These are they which are pure and undefiled, keeping themselves separate from the great whore and her influence. But then we're told, these, verse 4, are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. They're marked by obedience. What's the degree of obedience? They follow the Lamb. And they follow him whithersoever he goeth. It's amazing if you go through the New Testament, through the Gospels, how many times those two words appear. Follow me. Jesus called different ones at different times. And all he had to say was two words. Follow me. Even whenever Peter, in John 21, when Peter is being restored to his place of fellowship and communion with Christ and service for Christ, what did Jesus say? Follow me. Follow me. Now look at what is stated of these. They follow the Lamb. They know the Lamb. They follow Him as their Redeemer. They follow Him as the one who has made an atonement for their sin. They follow Him as the one who justifies them before God. They know the significance of Him as their Lamb. Without him, they've no atonement. Without him, they can't be justified. Without him, they cannot be reconciled to God. So they cleave to him. They are dependent upon him. They cling to him. They know without him, we perish. And so they're with him, as we said, verse 1. But they follow him whithersoever he goeth whithersoever he goeth, wherever he orders, wherever he commands, they go. It's interesting, I was reading recently of General McMaster, President Trump's appointed security advisor, highly decorated general and very much respected by his troops who have fought under him in different situations, particularly in Iraq. And he was asked, or some of those that had served under him, naturally the journalists, they're all running around to find out about him, how he was like, what he was like to serve under and so on. And a sergeant major by the name of Donald Sparks said of McMaster, I would follow him to war and hell if he asked it of me. He was so confident in his leadership that he would put his trust absolutely in him. He would follow him anywhere because he had confidence in him. This is one of the reasons why Alexander the Great conquered the world because his troops were so devoted to him, they were so dedicated to him, they said they would follow him anywhere to the ends of the earth. Now look at the loyalty here of these who are with him in Mount Zion. They are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. You do not find the Lamb, and they're missing. And you do not find them off on their own without the Lamb. They're united, and they're absolutely 
loyal to him. Then we're told that these are redeemed from among men. Why are they so loyal? Because he's redeemed them. They owe him everything. And so they're devoted to him because of his devotion to them. What a harmonious, glorious relationship. They follow him whithersoever he goeth. Absolutely devoted to him. Why? Because he has been so devoted to them. He redeemed them. He freed them. He gave them life. And they owe them, they owe their lives to him. So they follow him, devoted to him, whithersoever he goeth. My, my, my. Do you and I think we really belong to this host? Are we devoted to Christ as we ought to be? Or do we hang our heads in shame that he's been so devoted to us? And how lacking we are in devotion to him. This is the glorious scene. Then we're told that They are those in whose mouths was found no guile. These are their qualifications. Down through history, when anyone, whatever army it happened to be, whatever period, right to this day, what has to take place Before any passing out parade takes place, they have to raise their hands and they have to swear allegiance to the queen and so on. And if they are not faithful to the oath they've taken, then what happens? They are considered to be traitors and uh, they are considered to be unfaithful to their oath and they will be imprisoned and court-martialed for it. In their mouth was no guile. They swore allegiance to Christ and no matter how dark the days were, they remained true. Yes, you see, the powers of darkness overwhelming them, having power to slay them even. But here they are, loyal to Christ. (coughs) Whatever happens, they follow him wherever he goeth, and they are without fault before the throne of God. They are justified. They're justified before the throne. What a sight. In spite of all the battle, the troops are there. Not one's lost. There's the lamb, and his people are with him. 144,000. And on that day when the whole church is completed, And all the saints have come through their battles and their struggles and the church has come through its trials and its persecutions throughout all the various lands. The Lamb will be there on Mount Zion. And every redeemed soul will be with him. The great question is this. Will you be with him? Will you be with him? Because if we're not among the redeemed, who follow him whithersoever he wills, we'll not be there. It's as simple as that. If we have to read these qualifications and have to acknowledge, I don't have that devotion to Christ. I'm running here and there after this 
pleasure and this sin and that sin. My heart is with the world and the things of the world. I'm not devoted to Christ. Shame upon us if that is the case. Because here is the great number that are with Christ, even in the thickest battle. What a sight, John says, I looked, and lo, a lamb, and all the saints are with him. Will you be with him? Will I be with him? That's all that matters. The redeemed, he devoted himself to them, and now they devote themselves to him. And may we be among them. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we rejoice in the great triumph of God's Redeemer, the Lamb standing in Mount Zion. Oh, may it be our earnest pursuit this day to seek the evidence that we are with him, that we will share his triumph, and that we shall share his victory over all his enemies. Bless us with understanding of thy truth. Courage thy people to be persevering in the path of duty. Pardon us, receive us for the Redeemer's sake. Amen.